time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover. Welcome to Open Book, the Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Nina Serrano. Today's guest is three-time novelist Valerie Haynes Perry with three very interesting novels that she's going to share with us today and speak about. Welcome, Valerie Haynes Perry. My pleasure, Nina. Thank you for having me on your show. Yes, and we're excited about the books you're going to be telling us about. The first one, the first one that you published was Tanner Blue. The character, Tanner Blue, is an African-American woman named after the black painter, Henry Tanner. Her memory of being born inspires Tanner Blue to explore her own potential as an artist. Nurtured by her father and discouraged by her mother, Tanner Blue resorts to the artist's weapon of choice, imagination, in order to pursue her dream. Destiny leads Tanner Blue to a magical world that tests her creative abilities and alters her relationship to reality forever. It is set on the dreamy north coast of California in the enticing territory of Blackton. This novel embodies universal themes of duty, alienation, and self-fulfillment. Valerie, tell us more about it. Can you read to us from Tanner Blue? I'd love to. Before I begin, I'd just like to say how much I love every aspect of writing, particularly those moments when the concept for a story comes together. So with Tanner Blue, this whole notion of remembering one's birth, you know, that's one thing we all have in common. If we're alive, that means we were all born in all kinds of circumstances, of course. But I became obsessed with the thought of what if we could actually remember our moment of birth and what kind of impact would that have on our lives. So I'd just like to read a very short section from the beginning of Tanner Blue. It takes place on her 30th birthday, which has a particular significance for her. It's more than a birthday. She begins this ritual of remembering the fact that she was about to be born into this world. In this scene... She and her roommate, a male, these are two African-Americans living on the north coast of California. It's said quite often that one must suspend their disbelief. So for some, it might be difficult to imagine two African-Americans living on the north coast of California. But here we are with Tanner Blue and Nile. Tanner Blue owns her own home and Nile is a forestry student who's renting from her. So Nile wakes up, sees Tanner Blue, and he's a little bit um, disturbed because she looks upset about something. So he says, Tanner Blue, what's wrong? Bad dream? She shuddered, stood back from Nile and grasped his shoulders. Nile, I just remembered being born. He shook his head. That must have been some dream. I don't dream anymore, Nile. You don't remember. I do remember. That's why I stopped dreaming. A 
I'll stop there and just go back to something that you said in the introduction, Nina, about obstacles to Tanner Blue's pursuing her desires to to be an artist. This whole notion of her not dreaming anymore is the direct result of someone very close to her having said something very damaging that has become an obstacle to her pursuing her potential gifts as an artist. So trying to deal with this damaging thing that was said to her, in addition to being named after a famous artist, really starts to conspire against her spiritually in a certain sense, and it kind of all culminates on her birthday. One event and realization is layered on top of another until it gets to the point where she has to make some kind of choice about whether she's going to say, let me just forget about pursuing a career as an artist or let me embrace it fully. So that is her journey in this story. What about this concept of blackness, this fantasy part of the book? Another thing that I love about writing is what the reader brings to the story. Blackton as a fantasy is certainly one perception of this place where race is not an issue, but there are all of these other factors such as ego, competition that goes along with ego. Tanner is trying to deal with re-engaging with painting and throughout that process she becomes aware of this other dimension where she is fully accepted and embraced as an artist with talent so the choice that the reader has to make is whether they see this experience that Tanner has as a fantasy or if their imaginations allow them to actually say my goodness perhaps this is a real place that exists Well, we certainly hope that at least one day such a place will exist where race will not be an issue between people. Indeed.
Shall we move on to your next book? Yes, please. The next book you wrote was Painted Desert, and I'll let the listeners know a little bit about that book. The protagonist, Lenore Brooks, is an African-American woman in her early 40s who visits the old town Oakland Farmer's Market on Friday afternoons. Though she is married to Jamie Lamont, who's a very successful realtor, she finds herself drawn to Mangrove Wingfeather, who she's noticed at the market for several weeks. Lenore dabbles at painting, and Mangrove sets up exhibits at the Oakland Museum. After Jamie invades Lenore's artistic space, Lenore leaves home and accepts Mangrove's invitation to accompany him to the painted desert on a business trip. Overshadowed by a full solar eclipse, their travels bring to light a shocking secret that pulls Lenore in many revealing directions. Wow. That situation, and while I was reading it, I must say that that situation kept me uh, turning pages very rapidly. (laughs) Glad to hear that. (laughs) Can you read to us from that? I'd love to. On the back of this book is the quote, Can I show you something? Which is the first line of the story, which begins like this. Can I show you something? It's Friday in mid-July in downtown Oakland. I've spent the past hour at the Corner Cafe watching the crowded farmer's market percolate, expecting him to appear. We've noticed each other since early spring. Ending my wondering, he takes a seat across from me at our round sidewalk table. A bold impulse makes me reach for his face and remove his sunglasses. His eyes are some color between hazel and gray, and they are serene like the rest of him. Replacing his shades, I notice the color of my hand floating above his skin. We share a chai spice complexion like the tea in front of me that has steeped from hot to cold. I reach into my yellow canvas bag and produce Histories of Sand Painting by Lenore Brooks. Her name is the same as mine. The cover of this thin, hard-covered book displays a black-and-white image of smooth desert sand inscribed with bright green italic Navajo letters. The act of flipping through the pages fans the air with scents of fruit, vegetables, and incense. I tell him, This comes from the library bookstore up the street. Maybe it will help me in my painting class. What kind of paint? Watercolors. If you're going to deal with sand, maybe you should try acrylics, not much water in the desert. I've touched his face so it's easy to shake his extended hand. Mangrove. Lenore. I place the book on the table and he looks at the cover. You wrote this. Shaking my head, I say, I've never even seen a desert. How do you think this book can help you? I've skipped the words and studied most of the photographs, lots of deserts shot in black and white. I think studying these pictures will force me to imagine colors and know how to treat them. He pinches his stubbly chin. One spiral of his black, crinkly hair bounces to his forehead. Can't hurt that you have the same name. A server comes to our table. The first thing I notice is her shadow. Then I miss the orange and pink umbrellas that have been replaced by a yellow awning with the flourish FM Jazz in black script. The server's feet are turned out in dancer's first position. She's tall and shapely with sienna-colored skin. Looking quickly from me to Mangrove, her gaze settles comfortably on him. You two need more time? I pick up the menu and say, I think so, but I could be wrong. 
You've just heard Valerie Haynes Perry reading from her book, Painted Desert, the middle book of three. So talk to us more about that book. Painted Deserts is a strange little story, as you mentioned in the introduction. There's this intrigue going on between Lenore Brooks and Mangrove, who both of whom you've just met briefly. And Mangrove is one of three men who influence Lenore's life. Mangrove is kind of this mysterious stranger, if you will, for the time being. Her husband, Jamie, is this hotshot realtor, and they are estranged from each other and have this unusual relationship where she just kind of rents her own place for months at a time to give them some space, which makes their reunion kind of uh, passionate, let's say. And that's worked for them for about 10 years. And then the third man in her life is her father, Darius, who is either a guru in Arizona or he's a charlatan. Um, And this is something that the reader gets to decide. So the fact that Darius, Lenore's father, is in Arizona is cause for her to take her first trip through the desert. And you had mentioned something about the grammar of the title, uh, of the first line of this, where you say, can I show you something, where you could have said, may I show you something? Could you speak about that? Thank you so much for bringing that up, uh, Nina. That's such an important detail. Details such as these make all the difference. Before that even, I'd like to mention that the name of the book is Painted Deserts in the plural, and there is a line that I can read quickly in a moment um, that that comes from, but the can I show you something versus may, can speaks to one's capability rather than may would be more asking permission. It would be kind of a courtesy. And the reason Lenore says, can I show you something, is she's gotten to the point where she is just capable of opening up to this stranger who she feels this unusual connection to, to tell him about her taking this painting class and actually being open to receiving some of his input about it so you were going to comment on the word deserts yes and also with painted deserts there is one section of the book on page 88 where as Lenore is walking around in the painted desert she says or she thinks we're all deserters prettied up with surface paint And as I mentioned before, we all bring something to the interactive experience of reading and writing. And from my point of view, and also if I may speak for Lenore, where all painted deserts mean that we all have these facades. We're kind of painted up and we present what we will to different people. So that is kind of a point that I had in mind in writing the book, is just the way we interact based on our trust levels and connections that we do or don't feel with people.
You're listening to Valerie Haynes Perry, our author today. And Valerie, what about this third book that's called Members? And this wonderful line in it, how could I be a member if I'm the only one? This book is about the character Iseline Will, a black girl from the projects on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Can you talk to us about that book and read to us, too? I'd love to, Nina. Thank you for that invitation in addition to the others. This really is my most personal book, um, something I've thought about a lot lately and something I've discussed with other writers is why is it that when you go to a book reading, I love to go to readings myself, uh, book, book signings and readings of my favorite authors or just new authors I'm interested in, why is it that the audience will pretty much all the time want to know, well, what's true? Are you really the main character? You know, what percentage of the book is made up and what is not? And although it's not scientific, I don't mean to speak for every author, that's for sure, but although it's not scientific, you know, it would be difficult to say, well, 30% is really based on experience, 70% is made up. I will say that this is a very personal book for me because like Iseline Will, I'm African-American. I grew up in some housing projects on Manhattan's Lower East Side. I had the benefit of going to elite schools. So what I've come to think about the reason that people want to know how much is true, how much is not true, is beyond voyeurism or just simple curiosity or as one other writer, one writer friend said, just nosiness. It lends authenticity if a writer can say, well, yeah, I really have some sense of how this character would feel because I had a similar experience. So that was a real insight for me is to just respect the reader's desire to understand why something does or does not feel authentic. So having said that, I would like to explain the origin of this particular quote that's on the back of the book. How can I be a member if I'm the only one? That is a question that Iseline, the main character, asks her father, Aubrey. And I'm going to read two short scenes. One will show you the relationship that Iseline has with her father, and the other will show you the relationship she has with her mother. Now, in this small apartment in New York, the living room is Iseline's domain with her father. That's where they sit and listen to jazz albums when he brings them home on paydays on Friday nights. That's where they sit for him to tell her stories about his um, early life and his experience um, in the Black Cavalry at West Point, which is actually true to life for me. My father was in the Black Cavalry at West Point. So this is just a brief scene in which... Iseline and her father are in their space in the living room. Aubrey lit a cigarette and blew out a long plume of smoke with a... <sighs> are there any members in your class, doll? We're all members, Poppy. In spite of himself, Aubrey smiled. A wave of comprehension rose to the top of Iseline's brain. I know what you mean, Poppy. But how can I be a member if I'm the only one? That's a damn good question, doll. A damn good one. Iseline waited for a story, but her father went away, even though he was sitting right there in the same room with her. Despite all of his stories, how could she feel that she knew less than more about who he was? 
She thought she heard him say, I can do so much more than this. As Iseline watched her father retreat into his inner space, the south he fled, a night in a jail cell perhaps, she knew the neighborhood of his loneliness. Asking him to repeat himself was out of the question. So what else could she do, or he for that matter, but believe that he was absolutely right? So here we have a sense of Eisleen's relationship to her father, how she feels about him. In contrast, here is a short scene between Eisleen and her mother, Beryl. Their domain happens or tends to be um, around the kitchen table. Iseline and Beryl sat at the kitchen table peeling potatoes. Iseline used a rusty peeler while her mother stuck with a good old-fashioned paring knife with a smooth, sharp blade. The daughter had convinced the mother to try canola oil, which, though generous in fat, contained no cholesterol or carbohydrates. A big metal pot was heating on the stove like the early July temperature, building up enough momentum for the inevitable humidity of August. I see, remember that cruise I told you Aunt Flory was going on to celebrate her retirement? Uh-huh. Well, she just got back this morning. She twisted her ankle coming down the ramp. Good. I see. Serves her right. That isn't nice. Neither is she. Beryl sighed heavily. Anyway, she's going to sue the city. I hope the other side wins. Peeling away more potato than skin, Beryl said... I see even if you can't forgive her sharp tongue or accept her as she is, you should learn how to forget getting your feelings hurt. Iseline shrugged. Maybe you're right. Maybe I should just think of her as one more person I have nothing in common with. Be happy as the only member of my club. The knife slipped, nicking Beryl's finger. Shoot. She got up and rinsed the small and nagging wound under the kitchen tap. Iseline got a Band-Aid and some acurochrome to doctor her mother up. At the kitchen sink, Iseline asked, Mom, how come you never ask me about school? I see, I ask you all the time, but you never seem to listen. You don't seem interested. I just want us to have more in common. More than blood? She held up her bandaged finger. That's not enough? Beryl went back to the table and resumed her potato peeling. Iseline, the world does not revolve around you. Can't you see I'm doing the best I can? Now that your father's starting all over at his age, and as a security guard, I'll never, ever have a house. Iseline felt weightless as she joined her mother at the table. Poppy's lost his job? The mother grabbed the daughter's shoulders as if they were handles. Her hands trembled, shocking Iseline with their rippling, involuntary movement. You have the sharpest mind, Iseline. You have a way to get whatever you want, whenever you get around to making up your mind what that is. I've always known that about you, I see always. Beryl let go. I'm your mother. Why didn't one of you tell me about Poppy? I just did. How am I supposed to feel? You're asking me? No one can make anyone feel anything. I see that would be too easy. You mean you wish I always had my nose in some book or was going to movies where they don't even speak English or... Beryl covered her face. Why am I acting like this? Directing this question at herself, Iseline studied the first face she had seen at birth. Her throat was tight, but she managed to say, Mom, I'm sorry. I see you listen to me. The three of us, we have each other, no matter what, that means everything to me. 
She wiped her face and pushed away from the table. There, that's all done. I'll get the string beans. Beryl Will got up and went to the refrigerator, humming a toneless tune. Iseline stood before a pot of boiling oil with the bowl of cut potatoes in her hand. As she let them drop, one by one, she wondered about the difference between destiny and fate. Perry. She's been reading from her latest novel, Members. Where can listeners find these books? Locally, they're available at Books, Inc. in Alameda. The address is 1344 Park Street in Alameda. And I would be happy to work with other local bookstores who would be willing to stock the book as well. In addition to that, I self-publish through Lulu.com. And if you visit my website, tannerblue.com you'll find a link to my storefront where you can buy the books either through lulu.com or as a kindle download thank you so much valerie haynes perry my pleasure nina thank you This has been Nina Serrano for Open Book, the Poet to Poet series. Have a very good afternoon. Buffalo Field Campaign Roadshow to the Bay Area on Friday, September 26th, 7 p.m. at the Ecology Center, 2530 San Pablo Avenue between Dwight Way and Parker in West Berkeley. The show features storytelling and video from the land of the buffalo with campaign co-founder Mike Meese and the amazing native music of Good Shield Aguilar and Mignon Gelly. 
The campaign works to end the slaughter of the last wild buffalo. This is a benefit for the Buffalo Field Campaign, and it is wheelchair accessible. For more info, phone 510-548-3113. Or visit our website at buffalofieldcampaign.org. 